There is a study guide that says Matthew 6, verse 16 through 18, floating around. I got a few extras. If you don't have one and don't see one beside you, would you throw a hand up and I can get you one? Anybody? Okay, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> so we've been coming through the Gospel of Matthew together in this Sermon on the Mount. We're at Matthew 6. Look at verse 16. And we're going to read to verse 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words. Thank you for this, this sermon on the Mount, Lord, and let us study it together. God, I pray that you would do all that you designed, Lord, all that you designed to do through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. God, please do it. Help us to understand, give us clarity, give us submissive hearts. Please, God, give us submissive hearts to obey you and be doers of your word and not merely hearers. God, please keep that religion far from us that honors you with our lips, but our hearts are far away. God, keep that religion so far from us, please. Give us submissive hearts to obey you, to love your word. Help us to see this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, what we just read is a part of a larger section in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's chapter 6, verse 1 through 18. And verse 1 is really sort of a foundation for the whole section. So let's read that. Verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So we get this charge to watch out. Watch out for practicing your righteousness to be seen by other people. And then we get three examples in the following verses. We get the example of giving, not giving to be seen by others, praying, not praying to be seen by others. And then our passage today, fasting, not fasting to be seen by others. Now, this, this whole section 
chapter 6, verse 1 through 18, it's really a good reminder to us that King Jesus has standards and expectations for his people. He has standards and expectations for his people. And those standards of, of Christ, those expectations of Christ for his people, they are external, like giving, praying, fasting, do these things. They're expected of us. And they're internal. He cares about the way we do those things, our intentions, our motivations for doing those things. Don't do these things to be seen by men. So it's a reminder to us that there are real expectations from Jesus on his people. Now, if you go down through that whole section again, chapter 6, verse 1 through 18, you've got seven when you statements, right? So, so when you, so uh, seven of those, when you give, and then again, when you give, and then, and then when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, and in our section today, when you fast, when you fast, not if you do these things, but they, these are these expectations that Christ lays out for his people. So we have real God-given standards in the Christian life. And really, if you think about it, the whole Sermon on the Mount does this. And not just this section of the sermon, but the whole Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through 7, lays out these standards and expectation expectations for God's people. Now, uh, I think it was John Stott that called the Sermon on the Mount the Christian counterculture. So you got cultures all over the world. You got this culture and that culture, and they, they tend to do this in this culture, and they tend to do this in this culture. And what's being laid out for us in the Sermon on the Mount is this is the culture of the people of God. This is what the people of God are going to be like and ought to strive to be like. These are real standards. And so, so one thing we can take away from that that we learn from the Sermon on the Mount is that the gospel, it not only forgives the sinner, forgives the people of God, but also transforms the people of God into the image of Christ. So the gospel not only forgives, but it also transforms. So I want you to think about that. When a person believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, their sins are forgiven. The record has been wiped clean. Jesus crucified, bled, and died, suffered on the cross so that you don't have to suffer, so that your punishment is taken away, forgiven of your sin. And that's beautiful. But also, when someone believes in the gospel, not only are they forgiven, but they begin to be transformed. The scripture says they get a new heart, and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them. And they're not the same now as they were before. They're transformed into the image of of Christ. And so what we have in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is a snapshot of what Jesus' church is striving to be. And the standards and expectations he puts on his people, and then he empowers them by his Holy Spirit to live out these expectations. Now, as we've said, uh, especially at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we said that this sermon from Jesus, it kills antinomianism. And that still remains true. It absolutely kills antinomianism. Antinomianism is that idea of, um, yeah, yeah, tell me, what, who, tell me who God is and tell me what God did, but don't tell me what God demands on my life. That's antinomianism. They're okay with a little bit of theology. They're okay with that. But man, they are allergic to the commands, the demands 
the expectations, the standards that God lays out for his people. They're allergic to that sort of stuff. That's antinomianism. Antinomian, antinomians are really uncomfortable with the language that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Like his people will be a giving, praying, fasting people. Or like in chapter 5 when we got this push against lust. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say you, if you even look at a woman with lust, you committed adultery in your heart. If your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. Antinomians are really uncomfortable with that sort of pressure and push when it comes to God's standards. In fact, if, if, if an antinomian didn't know it was Jesus saying it, they might put a finger on him and say, you legalist. You legalist. To which Jesus might respond... Something like this, chapter 5, verse 17, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others, to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, it's the language of obedience, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I want you to think about that. So, so we have this expectations uh, of God's people, these standards laid out by Jesus of what his church will be like in the Sermon on the Mount. With all that in mind, Let's dig in to this specific one in chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. This external and internal standard laid out by Jesus. Now we're going to dig into chapter 6, verse 16 through 18 under three headings. Under three headings. Number one, Jesus expects his people to be a fasting people. Jesus expects his people to be a fasting people. Really clear in our passage. Twice it says this. Verse 16. And when you fast. Verse 17. But when you fast. Not if you fast, but when you fast. It's this expectation that the people of Christ would be a fasting people. Now you can get some cross references like Matthew 9 verse 15. Jesus tells them that whenever he ascends on high. He's died for sinners, risen from the dead, ascends on high. He tells them that when they do that, it says this. My people, it says, they will fast. Three words in Matthew 9, 15. They will fast. You can look at the people of God in Acts 13, verse 1 through 3. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. You can look at Acts 14, verse 23, where it says the people of God, the church, was what they were walking in prayer and fasting. We can see Jesus' example in Matthew chapter 4. It says Jesus is fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. And so here's, here's what I want you to see. I want you to be absolutely convinced of this. That just as surely as God expects his people to be a generous people when you give, and just as surely as Jesus expects his people to be a praying people, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, he also expects his people to be a fasting people. When you fast, when you fast. Now let's define fasting. Fasting is to abstain from something 
for a period of time for spiritual reasons. To intentionally abstain from something for a period of time for spiritual purposes. It's usually abstaining from food in the Word of God. Sometimes it's food and water. But it's just intentional abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. Now, what are, what are the, what's the length of time that you should, in your fasting, abstain from food for spiritual purpose? How, how long should you do that? And we get, we get different lengths of time all throughout the Bible, from one-day fast to two-week fast to 40-day fast. You get all this variety of time, so there's no prescribed. Every time you fast, it must be this much time. Now, here's what I want to exhort you to do. I want to exhort you on your own time to do a topical study throughout the whole Bible on fasting. Find every place in the Word of God that speaks about fasting, gather them up on a few sheets of paper, and notice some of the patterns that are laid out, some of the repetition that teaches you about what fasting is. Now, I want to give you a few of those discoveries. If you, if you go do that study, here's a few of the things I believe you'll discover that will help you understand what fasting is all about. I'm going to give you four quick things. One, fasting is connected to humbling ourselves. Fasting is connected to humbling ourselves. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, it says, We proclaimed a fast at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek from Him what's the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. Did you hear that? A fast that we might humble ourselves. You can also look at Psalm 35, verse 13, where he says, I humbled myself with fasting. I humbled myself with fasting. Now, there's several other verses that make this same connection. I encourage you to find those, but here's, here's a fact. Fasting is connected to humbling ourselves. It's this reminder that we we are a frail and needy people. And it's an expression to God that we recognize our own human frailty when we fast. And man, it sure shows it as you start to realize, my, I'm dependent on bread. I'm dependent on this food or I will die. It's an expression of human frailty and therefore we're humbled by fasting. Now, second, fasting is connected to desperation. It's, it's a desperate practice. It's a practice of desperation or uh, weeping. It's, it's connected to desperation and weeping and mourning. You see those words all grouped together next to fasting throughout the scriptures. Desperation, uh, weeping, and mourning for a variety of reasons. Okay, if you do that topical study, you'll see a variety of reasons for this sort of desperate mourning expressed by Fasting, just to give a few examples, this, this, oh God, I desperately need to be reconciled to you. I've sinned against you, Lord, and I desperately need, need to be, that's, that's something that you can express that through fasting and repentance. Or if you need guidance, like we just, I just quoted to you in Ezra 8, 21, it says desperate, God, we desperately need guidance. We need to know what you want us to do. And therefore we express that. With fasting, some, kind, some sort of difficult circumstance, a really hard situation, and you begin to fast because you desperately need the Lord in this hard circumstance. Certain temptations, as temptations begin to feel strong, and you begin to fast and pray and say, God, protect me in this time. 
Protect me in this temptation. You express that through fasting. Or we see, we see it when, when uh, missionaries are sent out in Acts 13 or, or pastors are appointed in Acts 14. God, we are desperately in need of you. We don't want to mess this up, Lord. And we express it through fasting and prayer as we lay hands on these leaders and, and appoint them or send them out. It's just a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's just a desperation and a longing just for the presence of God. Fasting is, is connected to a desperate longing. God, we just want more of you, more of your presence. Since we're so close, I'm going to read this verse in Matthew 9, verse 14, where you see exactly what I'm talking about. Look at this. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, think about the question. Pharisees say, how come we're fasting? But y'all ain't fasting. How come your disciples, Jesus, aren't fasting? To which Jesus responds, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest mourn? And he didn't say fast, he said mourn, because there's this, there's this equivalent here of fasting is a mourning, it's a desperation, a weeping. He said, should the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And the answer is no, it's time to feast because the bridegroom Christ is here. But then look, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. Jesus is taken away and look, and then they will fast. Then they will mourn. Why will they mourn? Why are they so desperate? Because Christ is here and they want more of Christ. You feel the desperation in that? And you go study all through your Old Testament. You see this desperation and mourning Disconnected to fasting. All right, a third connection. Fasting is connected to prayer. So number one, to being humbled. Number two, to desperation. And, to no, and number three, is connected to prayer. I'll give you a verse. Luke 2, verse 36 through 38. It's about Anna. It says, Anna, this, this old widowed woman, she worshiped the Lord in prayer and fasting. And you'll see that pattern as you study it over and over again. Prayer right next to fasting. Like fasting is an aid to, to extraordinary prayer. It's an aid to prayer. And number four, fasting is always Godward. It's always Godward. It's always aimed at Him. It's always towards our God. Just like prayer is Godward. You don't pray to your friends. Fasting is Godward. And we see that in our passage today. Don't do this to be seen by others. This isn't about other people. This is you before God. It's not a performance before men. Fasting is a time of laying aside physical hunger in order to express or even provoke sometimes that spiritual hunger for God. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. Why, why did God design us this way? That if you go without food for a certain amount of time, your body begins to feel something that you call hunger. What is this thing your body begins to feel? You begin to feel this desperate urge that, man, I want some food. I need some food. I want some food. And the longer you go without food, the more you want the food. Why did God design you that way? He didn't have to. 
He could have designed you that, yeah, you, you need food, but that peace where you hunger for it, he could have taken that out of the equation in his creation. But instead, he puts it there. Why? Because it's a shadow to teach us how to hunger for, for the true bread from heaven. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, physical hunger is given to us to teach us what it means to hunger after God. To long for him. To want more of him. So that's what fasting is. Fasting is laying aside the shadow for a time. That shadow of physical hunger to lay in to the substance. The thing that it points to. That hunger for God. That desperate longing for God himself. Fasting is to stop feasting on food. To start feasting on God. Start feasting on God. So Grace Community Church, listen. It's expected from us that we would be a fasting people. I hope you have a little bit of design, a little bit of idea in your head of what fasting is, and I encourage you to your own study. But look, I want us to be a people that grow in this, that are faithful in fasting, that respond to Jesus' words here, and that grow in fasting. And so I want us to talk for just a minute about a couple of underlying issues that would hinder us in being a people who fast. A couple of un underlying issues in our hearts that could keep us from being a people who fast. So please hear me out on this and take this as a warning. Number one, what can keep us from being a people who fast? Number one is pride. Pride. Now I want to explain that. Jesus... And, what, and, and, and the things that Jesus taught and the way Jesus lived, think about this. He essentially obliterated this sort of explicit, showy fasting, right? Now, understand, we'll, we'll get there in just a minute. There's a way you can fast to be seen by men, and it's subtle. But why does it have to be subtle? Why does it have to be so subtle? Because Jesus obliterated that showy stuff. I mean, nobody's walking in with a badge saying, hey, I'm fasting today. Why? Jesus obliterated that stuff. His teaching doesn't allow for that. You're way out of line, and you know you're out of line. Everybody knows you're out of line. If you show up saying, hey, how's it going today? Doing great. Been fasting. Okay? So it's never that explicit. So here's the thing. This practice by... Jesus has done this. He has pushed this practice into the humble secret place that doesn't give anyone the praise of men. And so you know what some will do? They say, oh, I don't get any praise from men for this practice. I just do it in the secret place. I just won't do it then. And what does that say about us? If we're a people that are willing to do all the visible things that men can see and we're faithful there, but we're unfaithful in the secret things that don't get the praise of men. What does it say about us? It speaks to our pride and our longing to be seen by others because we ignore these things. So, let, so listen to me. What can keep us from being a, a fasting people or people that, that live out prayer in the secret place? What can hinder us in this? Our own pride. Our own desire to be seen by others. So beware of that, please. Second, second, what can hinder us from being a fasting people is our complacency. Just complacency. Complacent people don't fast. 
And what I mean is, I, I told you a minute ago that fasting is connected to desperation, to mourning, to, to weeping. We want more of Christ. When, that, when you're lacking that desperation for God, that desperation for, for fruit in ministry, when you're lacking that desperation, that's complacency. When the hunger for God is not there, you tend to not fast. I love John chapter 5, verse, verse 35. It speaks about John the Baptist. It says he's a burning and shining light. So I would say, brothers and sisters, where's the fire in your soul? Where's the fire in your heart to be a burning light for Christ? And the more that's there, people that have that there tend to fast. But people that tend to lack that and they're complacent in their hearts towards God tend to be complacent towards fasting. I want to read a verse. I want to read a verse to you real quick in Hosea. Excuse me, not Hosea, in Amos chapter 6. Listen to this about complacency. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. They're just at ease. They just feel secure. Everything's fine. No need. Just complacent and different. It goes on to say, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves on their couches. Think of the description he's given here. Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. And like David, they invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. People like this don't tend to fast. Just at ease. There's no grieving over the ruin of Joseph. There's no longing for Christ. And because the longing, the, the desire's not there, it's just full of complacency. They don't tend to fast. Brothers and sisters, please beware of this. And I, and I just want to say, especially... In the culture that we're in, and even some of the circles that we tend to fit in theologically, in Reformed and Baptist-type circles, there's just this tendency towards an intellectualism, a, an intellectual scholarly version of Christianity that loves a little theology but completely neglects fasting. That loves a little bit of theology but... but, but is unfaithful to God to be in the secret place of prayer. Listen, there's nothing that exposes this pride of an intellectual, scholarly Christianity like a weak prayer life and the neglect of fasting. And so if that's you, if you feel like you neglect the secret place of prayer and the secret place of fasting, ask yourself that. Have you created for yourself this version of Christianity that is intellectual and scholarly, but it lacks passion? And zeal and a fire in your bones for Christ. I want us to be a people full of passion and desperation and mourning for the presence of Christ and a people who express that heart often through fasting. Now, second heading as we 
aim at being a people that meet this expectation of Jesus to fast, second heading is beware of hypocritical fasting. Now that's really verse 16. Look at it. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. He says, like the hypocrites. Beware of hypocritical fasting. Three times in this section, verse 1 through 18, it says, like the hypocrites, like the hypocrites, like the hypocrites. Don't give like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the hypocrites. And don't fast like the hypocrites. In other words, don't do it to be seen. Don't do it for the praise of men. Don't strive after man's applause. Recognition from people. Now this is a warning. It says verse 1, right? Look at the first word in verse 1 of this section. It says, beware. Beware. This is a warning. And it's a severe warning because it goes on to say in verse 1, beware. And then look at it. For then you will have no reward from your father. And that's repeated over and over again. You have no reward from your father. The praise of men will be your only reward. Do you see how severe that is? That's the threat about eternal destruction. You go down this route and the, the praise of men is what you long for. You'll have that reward. But that's the only reward you'll have. You won't have a reward from the Father. It's a severe, severe threat. I think even the recent situation that, that many of us have heard about with with Ravi Zacharias and everything going on there. Think about that man. That man, he got praise while on this earth. But he gets no praise in eternity from the Father. And it ought to stand as a warning to us all about seeking the praise of men. Now when you do that topical study I told you to do on fasting, you'll come across several places that give you bad examples of fasting. Okay? Bad example. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, Luke 18, verse 11 through 12. That's where that Pharisee is standing up in the synagogue. Remember that? And he's, he's praying. And he's saying, thank you, God. I'm not like this guy over here. I fast twice a week. It's this arrogant example of fasting. He thinks he's more righteous than others. Isaiah 58, verse 3 is another one like that. Well, they say, Lord, we've been fasting. We humbled ourselves, Lord. Why haven't you heard? And God puts the finger back on them and says, when you did that, you just did it for your own praise. In Isaiah 58, verse 3. When you go read Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1 through 7, where they go to God, the people go to God and say, God, should we keep fasting in the fourth and seventh month like we've done for so many years? Should we keep fasting like that, God? And God looks at him and he says, when you fasted in the fourth and seventh month, did you do it for me? And then it, comma, it repeats it. For me? You didn't do it for me. So there's a lot of warnings about, uh, about fasting by showing us bad examples. Now, does that mean we shouldn't do it? No, Jesus tells us in chapter 6, verse 16, that when you fast, you, you ought to fast, but, but don't do it like them. Be warned. This practice can be twisted. It can be twisted easily. Now, we should beware of lusting after man's applause. 
I want you to think real quick about how much Jesus hates this. The more you realize Jesus' hatred of this, surely it would make us want to walk away from fasting to seen by others. Think about Matthew 23. You can go back and read this later. Matthew 23, verse 25 through 28, where Jesus looks at a group of people that were living to be seen by others, and he says, you hypocrites. I mean, you can hear his hatred for it in the strong language. You hypocrites. He says, you whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but inside you're like dead men's bones. He says, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs. Jesus hated this stuff. That ought to shoo us away from having anything to do with it. Now, how does one fast? How does one do this? How does one fast for the praise of men? Well, verse 16 says, they look gloomy. Don't look gloomy. And then it says, and they disfigure their faces. You can just see them waiting on the question, right? They just look gloomy. And they're waiting on somebody to come along. What? Why are you looking so gloomy? Oh, I'm fasting. It's hard. Praise of men. Get the praise of men. Charles Spurgeon said this. To look miserable in order to be thought holy is a wretched piece of hypocrisy. And as it relates to fasting, it makes fasting into a trick to catch human admiration. To look miserable in order to be seen as holy, it makes fasting into a trick to catch human admiration. And thereby it destroys it as a means of grace. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. Now, this happens in all kinds of subtle ways, even beyond fasting. It happens in all kinds of subtle ways to where we can try to look miserable in order to be seen as holy. It can look all kinds of ways. How you doing, man? I'm so tired. I'm just so tired. Why are you so tired? Man, I was up at 3.30, discipled 100 people this morning. So tired. So miserable. I think pastors tend to be pretty guilty of this in our culture today. I call it the uh, poor, pitiful pastor syndrome. Poor, pitiful pastor. Sharing the articles, you know, 10 reasons you ought to send your pastor a Valentine because everything's hard for him. Put it up on social media. Look how hard it is for us. Guys, don't read that stuff. It's just so hard for me. Look how holy. Look how hard I work. We need to be aware of doing that in general, but specifically in fasting, there's subtle ways I can let you know just how holy I am. Little subtle ways. No one's wearing the fasting badge. They're letting you know in different ways. But we need to know this. Fasting is not for self-advertisement. It's for self-humiliation. Fasting is not for displaying ourselves It's for denying ourselves. So beware of hypocritical fasting. Third heading. Brothers and sisters, practice secret fasting. That's verse 17 and 18. Now, the reason why I divide these is because now you have a positive charge. You had a negative warning. Don't fast like the hypocrites. Now you got a positive charge. Charge, listen, listen to it again. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face 
That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's a positive charge he gives here. Now, secret. That word secret, in this whole section, chapter 6, verse 1 through 18, it's used five different times. That word secret is in there five different times. This is a call to secret devotion to God. Living before His eyes. Not craving admiration from other people, but living before the eyes of God. Integrity. When nobody else sees, who am I? Before God alone. Now, one thing I love about this, I think this is this idea of him calling us into the secret place to be with the father in secret prayer and fast before him. And nobody knows but your father. That call, it's a reminder of something for us. Okay, the Christian life is not just moralism that's set in place by a distant God. You know, what's the Christian life? The Christian life, we just act right. And who told us how to act? Well, that distant God way over there somewhere, he told us how to act and we ought to just act right. That's not the Christian life. You see, our God has drawn near to us. We see it most clearly in the cross where wicked sinners had their sin paid for because the God of glory took on human flesh and died for us. And the greatest treasure The greatest gift of the gospel for those who believe is that you get God. You get his presence. You get nearness to him. First Peter 318. Christ Jesus suffered one time for sinners, the just for the unjust. Listen, why? That he might bring us to God. He's the greatest gift of the gospel. And he wants to continue to commune with us. And we read that when we read this passage. And the passage over and over again says, walk before God in the secret place. Walk before God before his eyes alone. Go to the secret place of prayer. Fast before him when nobody else knows. Give and be generous when nobody else knows. Don't even let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. It's this reminder that we're not just acting right for a distant God, but he wants communion with his people. Nearness to God. Verse 17, it's a call to active concealment of your righteousness. Active concealment. In other words, if you read verse 17, it's telling us, look, go out of your way to look normal when you fast. Just like any other day, just look like that. When you fast, look look normal. Go out of your way to make it just seem normal. It's active concealment. Of your fasting or of your righteousness. It says here, I love these two phrases. Anoint your head, wash your face. Just do what you normally do. Anoint your head and wash your face. Brush your hair. Wash your face. Look normal. Don't draw attention to your righteousness. God sees it. Doesn't he? Isn't that enough? I love verse the end of verse 18. And your father, listen to this promise, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. What does that do to your heart? It's been said over and over again, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing when you're being generous and giving, but your father sees it in secret and he'll reward you. When you pray, don't pray to be seen by others, but go pray in the secret place of prayer. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. 
When you fast, don't fast to be seen by others. Your father who sees your fasting in secret, he will reward you. What's that do to your heart? The father's reward. Throughout this whole section, two rewards are put before us. You get the praise of men. That's a reward. A reward from men. Or you got the reward of the father. Which one do you value? You know, if you grasp after that lesser reward, this scripture teaches you lose the latter. You lose the greater reward. Which one do you value? When you think about the praise of men, does that sound good to you or very dangerous? When you think about the reward of the Father, He alone sees it and He promises the reward. Does that seem boring to you? Or is that your desire? The Father's reward is to be valued. Now I want us to close with just several real practical exhortations about this passage. Really, you know, our passage on fasting, but also we're kind of coming to the end of this larger section, this warning us about hypocrisy. So I want us to close with five practical exhortations. Please consider them. Take them into the quiet place, on your knees, before God, with an open Bible. And ask the Lord what He would have you to do. Number one, brothers and sisters, kill self-centeredness. I want to exhort us to kill self-centeredness. Now, now here, let me make a connection here and see if you can go with me, okay? Here's a connection. A love for the praise of men is really a self-obsession. You understand that? Why do you want the praise of men? Why do you want recognition? Why do you want them to see you? It's it's self-obsession. It's self-centeredness. Okay? It's about you. That's really a selfish desire. Now, what is a strategy you could employ to kill self-obsession, self-centeredness? How could you kill it? Well, one general thing you could do is, is live a life that's just full, absolutely full of these secret things that no man sees, only God sees it. Because what that does is it starves out that appetite for recognition. I don't give it to myself. I live before God and God alone. And I begin to starve out that appetite in me for the praise of men that I want to be seen. So live a life full of these secret things. It's a way to kill. It's a way to kill self-centeredness. And then more specifically, I would mention fasting to you. Think about this for just a minute. Fasting, remember, is connected to humility. Humble myself with fasting. Fasting is connected to humility. Now think about that. What is humility? Humility is not self-loathing or, or, or self-degradation, right? Uh, right? It's not, it's not uh, looking down, oh, I'm just looking down on myself and beating myself up. In fact, you understand that sin fits in the same stream as boasting. The man who thinks about himself a lot and thinks really, really highly of himself or the person who just, just demeans themselves and demeans themselves, guess what they're both thinking about? Themselves. From whichever side it's on, is still self-centered. So a humility is a self-forgetfulness. I'm not even thinking about myself. Fasting is a tool to this self-forgetfulness. Fasting is a tool to become 
so God-conscious, you're not even self-conscious anymore. To become so God-obsessed that you're not obsessed with yourself. So let these things be tools to kill self-centeredness. Now, second, brothers and sisters, fast regularly. Fast regularly. In other words, make it a discipline in your life. Just like, you know, when you pray, think about how you deal with prayer, how you should deal with prayer. It's a discipline that daily you go to God in prayer. It's not dependent on how comfortable it feels or or what it makes me feel like. I'm going to go to God and pray because he told me to pray. Now, you don't want to leave it there. You want to delight yourself in prayer and enjoy going to God in the secret place. It's not, it's not an end, but certainly there's a discipline there, a discipline of prayer and a discipline of fasting. The undisciplined character, somebody who is undisciplined in their heart, undisciplined in their character, they tend to not be able to fast. They're, they're, they're ruled by the idolatry of comfort or what feels good. So brothers and sisters, Beware of that. Now, how regularly should you fast? How regularly? Now, we don't, we don't get that in the scripture, so I can't tell you how regularly, but I can say this. If you have read through your Bible, all that it says about fasting, and you've never fasted before as a Christian, brother, sister, something ain't right. Or if you're on a trajectory in your life to you know, live to your 80 years old and the trajectory that you're on is you're going to look back and fasting is not a part of your life, some may write. So, so I'm encouraging you, brothers, sisters, fast regularly. Fast in your decision making. Fast for power from God in ministry. Fast because you want more of His presence, but fast regularly. Make it a part of your life. Number three, fast prayerfully. Fast prayerfully. In other words, when you fast, seriously, here's a practical exhortation. Set aside extended time for you to pray. Maybe you get up early in the morning. Maybe you use those meal times, but set aside time to pray whenever you fast. Now, a common objection that I've heard on fasting is this, something like this. Brother, I tried fasting, but I just felt hungry, not holy. I just felt hungry. That's it. And sometimes when that objection comes and I dig in a little bit, I find out that they're fasting, but they're essentially just not eating. They're not devoting any extra time to call out to God in extended prayer. So I'm going to encourage you not to do that. There's a connection between fasting and prayer throughout the Bible. Set aside time to pray. Number four, fast secretly. I know we've hit this a lot, but I want to hit it again right here. Just between you and God. Now, does that negate corporate fasting? No. All through the scriptures, we see that. You know, Ezra 8, 21, I quoted a minute minute ago. They proclaimed a fast at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God and seek from him the right way for us. So so, so corporate fasting is a thing. The church can fast together. Those things are true, but listen to me. If If you walk in the corporate fast, but neglect the private fast before the Lord, it makes your corporate fast fast suspect, right? Why are you willing to do it when everybody does it, but not privately? Okay? So fast, fast secretly. And the last one, number five, brothers and sisters, fast joyfully. Now, that's an interesting thing to say, because, you know, didn't you say it was connected to mourning and weeping and, and desperation? Yes. Once you think about this, though, fast joyfully. 
the, the Puritans used to call fasting the soul fattening fasting. Get your soul fat. Fat and healthy. When you fast, this will help you understand what I mean by, by fast joyfully. I want to read Psalm 4, verse 7 to you. Listen, listen to this. Psalm 4, verse 7 says, You, God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You see, their grain and wine abound. They got all they want to eat, all they want to drink. And man, they got joy. But guess what? I've got more joy than that. Because that's just the external thing, the physical thing, the temporary thing that points to the eternal and spiritual thing, joy in Christ. So think about that when you fast. I got more, I get more of you, I get more joy than when their grain and wine increases. Fast joyfully. When you fast, think about every time your body, because you're, you're, not, you're not superhuman, you'll feel hunger when you fast. And think about every time you feel hunger. Every time you smell something, whatever it is, it makes you feel hunger and you find yourself wanting something to eat. Every time it happens when you fast, I would encourage you to, to close your eyes for just a moment or say it in your head, however you do it, but say, but Lord, I want you more. But God, I hunger for you more. Yeah, I want that food, but I hunger for you more, Lord. That's fasting joyfully, leaving off feasting on food to feast on God. Some verses that you can, that you can sort of uh, equip yourself with to help you fast joyfully. Listen to this, Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Imagine grabbing that and in the middle of fasting, that's the cry of your heart. As you feel hunger in your stomach, you say, but oh God, but I hunger for you. I thirst for you. When can I have more of you, Lord? Psalm 63. Equip yourself with Psalm 63 as you fast. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Get, grab that verse. And when you fast and you feel hunger, find the joy of having more of Christ. I'm thirsting for more of the Lord. I want God more than anything else. Psalm 73 verse 25 is another one. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now, obviously, that verse doesn't teach you you don't desire food when you don't eat. But there's a, there's a superior desire that you're walking into, provoking in your soul and expressing through fasting. And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. I want you, Lord. I'd encourage you to take these practical exhortations, brothers and sisters, and consider what to do with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these, these sweet truths, Lord, that you give us. And God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to obey. Help us, God, to submit to you. Lord, I pray that you would bless the fasting in this church. That you would keep us from hypocrisy and loving the praise of men. Make us so obsessed with you, God, that we lose sight of ourselves so wrapped up in your praise that we lose sight of even desiring our own praise. 
God, keep us from the hypocritical stuff. But God, make us a people that know how to fast and pray. Make us a desperate people, desperate for your glory, desperate for your power. Kill our complacency, Lord. Lord, we hate the thought of being, getting that charge that you gave the Laodiceans that they were lukewarm. We hate it, Lord. Please keep us from it. We love you, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.